My name is Amy Gaeta. I am a PhD candidate based in the United States, studying at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the English department. And my research interests are on feminist and disability approaches to human-robot interaction. Wow. Um, can you... I don't think I've asked you this since our last conversation, but can you share why you chose to do a PhD and why you chose that field of research? Yeah, absolutely. So I chose to pursue a PhD when I was in about ninth grade in high school. So I had just entered um, high school. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent would be in the UK system, but... Um. I should, we'll, we'll figure it out. I'll edit it in. We'll figure it out. Right. <laughs> Either way, I was 14 years old, basically. So and you're one of those students. I, I was, <laughs> I absolutely knew, but I kind of sucked at high school for a number of reasons. <laughs> um, I did not get the best grades and it was really hard, but I knew I wanted to get a PhD because growing up, my, you know, I was also a first generation college student and growing up, my dad always instilled in me, he's like, you need to get an education because your mother and I really didn't. And he's like, and it has dramatically affected us and I want you to have a better life. So then he instilled in that in me and he never told me get a PhD, go to graduate school. But I got this idea very young. I was like, if I want to have any success in life, I want to have the highest degree possible. Mm-hmm. And I was so set on that. And I was decent in almost every subject, but I always really loved to read and I loved to write my whole life too. So English was a natural fit working in English literature. Of course. (laughs) Oh, yeah, of course. What else? And it was also what I ended up being best at and invested all my time in. So that was, you know, my fit. And when I did get into a PhD program, which was directly after I finished my kind of primary university education, did that, get into the PhD. And I said that I wanted to study 18th century romanticism which is like six white dead british male guys <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> like that is british romanticism and i was set on studying that and then i got in and i was like this sucks <laughs> i wonder why it sucks that's, I why, that's really why. judgmental sorry <laughs> yeah no no really i was like why is this so i was like i just don't relate to this whatsoever weird So I got over that and took me a really long time to realize the result of that interest and kind of the British romanticism was really a result of my schooling. It's all I had ever been exposed to. It's great literature was. I thought it was the best. and I wanted to be the best. Um, So become an expert in that. And then I had like two years, the first two years of my PhD, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing or what I'm really (laughs) interested in. Um, and I had always been interested in like militarism and war because my brother and dad are both veterans as well as my, um, one of my grandfathers. So I had that interest and I increasingly became interested in technology really and how we interact with it, which is something 
pretty much not discussed in English, the approach that I do at least. Mm. But I found an advisor who supported this fully. Um, my advisor, Leslie Bow. She, I took a class with her and she was working on a project at the time that was looking how um, robots are, she's like basically asked, why is it that robots are always gendered as women, particularly Asian women? What's up with that? What is up with that? What is up with that? And that was, that was Leslie's question. And I realized like I found someone that understands why I'm interested in this. You know, how does um, culture kind of prompt these relations and also create these relations, reproduce things like, you know, uh, racism, homophobia, sexism. Mm -hmm. And so Leslie was actually an expert in Asian American studies. And she was just like, I don't know why you want to work with me. You don't do Asian American studies. <laughs> and, I was like, and I was like, but we have the same theoretical approach. And I believe in the work you're doing. And her and my other advisor, Jill Cassid, um, have just been the biggest support and have let me do this project on which really on like human robot interaction, which is really on how humans interact with drone technology. And they let me follow that all the way down. So right now I don't have any proper literature whatsoever in my dissertation. Um, but it was just what I was interested in and it was, it's relevant. I think yeah. that's it. Cause I can see the impact that it might have on the world. And that was really important for me to have in scholarship. Definitely. Um, just a quick thing that popped into my mind as you were talking about drones. I don't know if you saw on Twitter, but a few weeks ago, the Derbyshire police here have used drones to survey people who are disobeying lockdown. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, oh, wow, this is just more um prominent in our daily lives and I thought because I wouldn't have really thought about that before but what did you think like were you particularly surprised by that uh not at all I know that I was just tweeting about the police using drones today actually for yeah. the pandemic um but but a different example a different usage I didn't know about that was they were surveying people for lockdown but I think this is part of a, a larger rhetoric going on right now that we are increasing surveillance in the name of human self human safety and human health and that may we may be true but it's also going to reproduce these unconscious biases so we also um in the states and in china so far there have been deployments of pandemic drones which are actually taking people's temperatures fever looking for virus symptoms from above it's scanning. Mm, that's chilling. It's so scary. And my first thought was, huh, isn't it weird that in the U.S., the higher rates of, you know, contracting and death on the coronavirus are also on people of color? And who's mm. going to get surveilled more heavily now? Because they're at higher risk. I that's mean, those my, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just one of those things because I'm not... I'm not surprised that new methods of surveillance are discriminatory, but it's also mm -hmm. like, come on, we've evolved and this is still happening. <laughs> but it's, yeah, 
Oh, no, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was just going to ask you, in, sorry, we're like all over the place, but in terms of, you know, we are in a pandemic in case everyone's noticed, um, where some people have said like, we need absolute measures to ensure the safety of everyone, but countries like the US, um, well, as you and I know, people are a bit more reluctant to give up like privacy and data controls. So, and trusting the government to implement absolute measures just wouldn't work. But mm-hmm. what what do you think? Like if drones, let's say like, okay, we'll use drones to survey everyone equally and this will stop the pandemic. Do you, do you think in that case, like it should be like deployed? Right. This is, this is what would be called um, in kind of drone studies as a humanitarian argument. Mm. Which is yeah, that was my intentional segue. No, yeah, sorry. right. I'm is... No, I'm totally oh, no, 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 joking. No, no. I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> this is yeah, this is the humanitarian drone. Um, I call it the good drone. Right. <laughs> yeah, <that laughs> it's also like cute. yeah, it sounds kind of cute, like the good drone. Like he delivers, <laughs> you know, blood supplies and surgical masks. Um, and you know, it's like one of those things that sounds great in theory. That sounds great, but it also relies on this understanding of technology as always precise and always objective. And the other, my other concern with that is if we are using drones to stop this pandemic and not humans, not human workers, like what are happening to their jobs, human jobs, um, because drones can, even if they have a pilot, they're semi-autonomous. They can, you know, there's things they can do with limited control. And one pilot could control five, six drones. So it cuts oh, down wow. labor force. Um, there's also the question of privacy. Not privacy, but um, of the sight of seeing a drone. I personally am not scared, but I know many people of color who have told me they, if they see a drone, they would run. In the United States, they were like, I would run. Hmm. And because, right, fears are conditioned. I mean, right. people who have been historically more surveilled than others and considered the target of police, why yeah. would they trust that? There's a, you know, there's a psychological sure. trauma there. That, that really weighs me down. Um, well, ha- a, it's a good, I like that as a yeah. thought experiment. If, yeah, drones could, if drones could save, save the end the pandemic, would we do it? And I'd probably say absolutely yes at the end of the day. Um, I think certain countries, like the countries that are doing relatively well with enforcing government sanctions for like dry, the test uh what am i saying drive through test centers things like that i feel like they would just do it and the public would generally be okay with it but i feel like other countries would be like it's still a drone this is a conspiracy blah 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 unfortunately that is um, yeah i'm just curious though because you said that you're not really scared of drones like have you always not been scared of drones because you mentioned your family members are veterans or where does that come from? Right. Right. That's a great question. I think ultimately why I'm, and this is something I, I 
kind of criticized quite a bit. Like, why am I not afraid of them? Why do I sometimes find them fun? That's, I shouldn't worry <laughs> that. And I think it comes down to a lot of, you know, like I grew up also in a police household. I have never felt like I'm the target of surveillance in a violent way. Mm-hmm. You know, it, for yeah. me, it's like the police protect us. And I'm like, but I know other people they do not protect. Wow. That's so that's so fascinating because your early environment just really impacts your thinking about a dangerous object, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And I want to go back to to thinking about um, you know, what you said about like, well, Americans are so they want to keep their privacy, their security. But like drones are also so tied to nationalism and the government. Mm-hmm. And I and that's why I think it would almost fly because many people don't see drones as an invasion of privacy when they have a, you know, a sense of nationalism to them. Hmm. Saving American lives. That's the argument for using drones overseas. We don't have to send soldiers. Now that you say that, I can kind of. It's like it's like oh, we can, yeah. like we can leave our drone like we can leave our houses, but there's still gonna be a drone watching me. Deal. <laughs> like I feel like they would be fine with that bargain. Oh, fast food, fast killings are now <laughs> fast saving lives. Exactly. Great like, campaign. <laughs> fast, oh, fast, America, fast. America, all the way down. Oh, yeah. um, wow, no, that's really. I didn't really thought about that. Um, one thing I'm kind of, I'm just going to go for it. I wasn't going to mention it, but I've recently watched, I'm a bit late to the game, um, the new Spider-Man movie. Um, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Yes. Oh, um, yes. I already, yes, I know where you're going. Go. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, spoilers ahead, everyone. But I mean, to be frank, like if you haven't seen it already, then where are you at? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um. So toward the end, they're fighting and their drones everywhere and blah, blah, blah. But I felt like a lot of the people, they didn't like my interpretation was, I guess, in that universe, they're so used to drones because they, they didn't like run or anything. Um, but I found it really interesting also that in a lot of those types of movies that the damage incurred are usually by drones. So what did you think about that when you watched that movie? That's, you know, I'm going to tell you when I watched this movie, because I think it's very funny. I was on the plane going to Sheffield um, for, you know, the aesthetics of drone warfare. Oh, how coincidental. Exactly. And I was like, I'll just watch Spider-Man 2. I need to relax. I need to not think about work. And then the movie started and I was like. (laughs) And I was like, the primary villain in this movie isn't even the Jake Gyllenhaal character. It's all the drones he controls. Yeah. I was like, that's just so weird. So I got very invested in the film. <laughs> um, and there is a sense, too, in the film when they realize, oh, it's just drones. They're all like, oh, it's it's just drones. It's fine. Yeah. And you're right. Like People don't really run away. Um, and this is part of what I'm interested in my work is like, how do people get conditioned to love these things, to not be afraid, mm-hmm. even though we know it does all these violent killings and has all these violent possibilities and, you know, is very increasingly 
running the risk of replacing human labor with um, automation. Yeah. Hmm. But I wonder if the in the film it reflects, you know, people not running away at the drones, but of course, you know, running away at this big scary <laughs> monster thing. I wonder if it reflects a sense of our future or what is already here for so many. Like all the drone parades. Oh, we're gonna, you know, do a drone light up tonight for the for our hospital workers. Make it an American flag, <laughs> and they do that crap. Yeah, no, you're you're right because it is equated with um, like, oh, go us, go humankind. We've developed these tools, and you know, even in the Winter Olympics in Korea, they mm. use drones to um do all the fancy stuff, and even um like normal citizens can buy drones. <laughs> How did oh, we yeah. get to this point? Like, how? Exactly. What's the thing about that? That's, that's, yeah, that's something amazing. And it's something I've been thinking about how the, the move from um, the commercialization of drones and also the increased consumer access where I can, you know, just, I could go on Amazon right now and I could have a drone in two days. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And I yeah. could even buy one that's very advanced. You know, they have ones for, you know, it would be like 15,000 pounds. Uh, I, I had no, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. But then I could also buy one for 40 pounds. That's crazy. Was that? I, I've actually never looked this up. Is that for real? Oh, yeah. I I bought, a, I bought a drone a few years ago and it was about 25 pounds. The That's you know the nuts. the advancedness of it is gonna change. Of course, cheaper models or can't do as you know much stuff. But if you have the money, you could buy you know you could buy one for five hundred dollars that is you know good enough to go peek over into your neighbor's yard and oh. take a video. That's creepy. <laughs> um, I yeah. know it's been done, unfortunately, but wow. It's, yeah. So the increased consumer access is weird in a sense, and this is where my work comes in, that no one is really highly critical of it. But why, actually, sorry to interject, but I oh, just also wanted to add that, um, you know, some people, especially like when you're getting married, drones are mm -hmm. welcomed, right? Because you want to capture everything. And it's great. Like I've seen friends' videos and, you know, yeah. I'm really glad that a drone was able to capture all the content. So I guess... Plus, like everything that you were saying, um, drones have been kind of um, equated to this is something useful for our daily lives. But, you know, when I read your um, sorry, not not paper, like presentation. Yeah, the um, conference paper. Yeah, conference paper. And um, when I went to the conference, <laughs> obviously, drones are uh, very destructive. So, I mean, what 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 do you think? happens like is it um conscience ignorance like what do you think of all that's going on with drones i i think it's that's a really yeah i think that's a really good thing to point out right i mean there are many good uses of drones and i think photography is really one of the best examples there like it just seems so innocent i'm just filming a wedding um 
or sometimes they use them to survey disasters. And that's like, you know, that seems like such a great usage. And I guess, you know, there is a argument to a question to be had about like, is it no drones at all? Or is it like no drones for some uses? Mm. And my my concern here is kind of a deeper psychological one. Like I'm interested in the psychological impact that this has on people. So when it comes to things like um, like automation, there's actually a part in Aristotle's Poetics, if you believe it or not, about automation. Yeah. That guy is everywhere. Yeah. And so in the and I thought this was a great argument, and then Aristotle did it. So in in the poetics, he starts talking about automation, and he says basically the only way he could ever really end slavery is automation to make human labor obsolete, so we wouldn't have to enslave people; we could enslave objects. And this is, like, the fundamental logic behind, like, many uses of drones. It's like, I, you know, don't have to send men or men and women. I don't have to send people into the battlefield to fight our wars. You know, uh, we don't have to, you know, risk the spread of infection by having more tests or having people, you know, people to people coronavirus testing. What if we could do it with a drone? So it seems, you know, mm-hmm. great, but then my psychological, you know, the psychological um, harm, I think, is, well, what happens when we do develop this object and we treat it like a servant? Yeah. Okay, so it's our servant, mm-hmm. like Alexa or Siri or something like that. And then what gets pervasive for me is the relationships that people develop with their drones and the feelings of mastery they get from it. Wow. I am chilling. Like, you know, I am a God in the sky. I can control anything. That's kind of the war argument for it, especially thinking about drone operators. It's like, you know, total power. I have total visibility. And then at the consumer level, and this is what I particularly study is my obsession is all these really creepy relationships that um, just casual drone users develop with their drones, naming them, um, you know, calling them their, you know, their new girlfriends, treating them like children, crying (laughs) when they break. That's, that's the really disturbing part for me. No, it's chilling. Um, Actually, before you mentioned all of this, uh, my assumptions for drones were usually, oh, warfare, like bombings, violence. Mm. I hadn't, re- this sounds like so, um, sounds obvious, but I hadn't really thought about how they're used for commercialization purposes until we started talking. Um, so just curious, what assumptions do you face from people when you bring up drones in your research? That's that's a great question. Um, so usually when I I think it depends on who I ask. If I'm asking you know a family member or like a, or talk to or you know an other academic or just a general person you know 
general person, etc. <laughs> Someone I meet on the street or whatever, a first yeah. date, doesn't matter. And, you know, they asked me if I study drones. The three kind of assumptions they have is, um, like, oh, you must obviously study it in military context, drone warfare, that sucks. Oh, wow. And <laughs> that's right. And then the second is, like, Oh, that's like, and I'm like, oh, I study, you know, drones and kind of the, in the domestic space and in commercial sectors. And then it's, they think I design them or they think, they usually think I'm pro drone, basically. So I've been on so many, I've been on so many bad first dates where I tell them I study drones and the guy immediately goes, oh, I have a drone. And I'm like, oh, oh, now you're going to tell me how great it is for 20 minutes and then I'm going to ruin your life. Uh, like it has time. to be done yeah i'm like i have to tell you it's the problems but i usually just keep my mouth shut and don't call them back <laughs> is that your litmus test for how um uh, if a first date might lead to a second date let let me bring up drones and see what they say yeah yeah exactly i'm like oh let's see how you react i'm like you know if you have some if you're able to be self-critical yourself all right that's a pass <laughs> so well, that's that's actually, so that brings us to the third response which i just hate when people say this to me if you ever anyone listening if you ever meet anyone who studies like robots or artificial intelligence or any technology thing never ask them so when are robots going to take over the world because we oh, hate that God, question God. more than anything on the planet <laughs> and so when are robots i'm just kidding <laughs> you're like erasing next question (laughs) (laughs) sorry go ahead um and the reason that's such a bad question and this is what i always say is i think it's such like a first world question Mm. i'm like these are already doing violence every single day question isn't like when they're going to take over the world the question is like how are humans using these to reproduce and maintain violent structures Um, so I think that is one of the, one of the huge things that I try to bring into my work is I try to find a really solid balance between understanding that like robotic autonomy does exist to some degree and, you know, robots can make decisions without human intervention and that's very scary, but a lot of times they, but they're still designed by humans. Anything designed by humans is going to have you know, human biases, whether they mean to put them in there or not. It's that kind of the unconscious element um, that goes often under-discussed. And that's why things like good drones don't get, you know, commercial drones, domestic drones, never get really critically assessed. Not even among drone scholarship. It's something that is um, definitely not studied as much at all. Well, what do you think are the gaps in drone research right now? Yeah, that's such a good question. And that's also one of the difficult things about studying drones. It's like drone research is so wide. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> right? I never thought that a lot of my time getting an English degree would be me contacting engineers. <laughs> I never thought that where I'm just like, can you make, because a lot of my project is me teaching myself um, engineering and aerospace science. Oh, wow. That's cool. It's very cool and very hard, but I've made a lot of good engineering friends through that. 
so one like drone scholarship is so wide so if i want to look at an engineering perspective nobody's like you know criticizing the moral costs of these things that's Mm. something you know engineers you know wouldn't normally think about um or if they do it's they're like well i don't make them for warfare so it's fine and i'm like eh, i don't know (laughs) Um, I'd say that current gaps in drone scholarship to return to the question is really one we can't know right now, but what are going to be the long-term psychological and societal effects of drones? Um, My current, one of my current issues, my current um, fixes right now is looking about how drones are used in pedagogy and drone education programs at universities. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is also not largely critically addressed. It's basically thinking about how can we condition children at a young age to trust drones so we can train them to be um, you know, future designers and engineers and pilots in the drone injury industry because the drone industry is expected to grow billions of dollars over, you know, the next 10 years. Um, So there's a huge capitalism argument going on here. Um, That kind of profit is, I think, overriding a lot of people's moral compass and not critically questioning these. And it's also job security. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to university, it's like, well, here's the thing. It's like you can study English um, and get a degree in it. And then you're going to be in this really precarious job market for like five years. And you might get a job one day, but you probably won't have health care with it. Like that's the English oh, job, market for, yeah. that's the job market for people, you know, working in the humanities. Yeah. And, and it's like, or you can be a drone pilot and you are working in the future. You are guaranteed job security and you're guaranteed to start it, you know, 70,000 pounds a year. Wow. Yeah, it's really layered, isn't it? This whole issue. Yeah, the layers, I, I think, are what makes it makes it so hard to, to make those, like I said, make those moral decisions. Um, and, you know, it's it's even it's hard for me too because i can't deny right now that i think it is amazing that drones are being used to things like used for things like delivering surgical masks and delivering blood supply that's amazing i absolutely i can't deny the immediate help that that has on people and then it's thinking long term about how this conditions the human but I think that's mm-hmm. a lot of what um, we had discussed too at the drone warfare conference, where it's looking at you know pilots and trying to understand what are the complexes that they develop from this. Um, how do they begin to, I mean, literally see differently? Like their vision changes, where they can't detect a dog from a human body. That is the, oh, the psychological So what do they do? They just, they're like, oh, it's probably a dog. And they shoot the dog. And that's a true story. Oh, <laughs> that's honestly so eerie. Um, 
Well, so to change it around slightly, <laughs> um, what do people assume about you and you as a researcher? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think a lot of times the responses that people have, such as like, are robots going to take over the world? Or they tell me how great they think drones are, comes down to a lot about how I look and how I present myself. Um, so mm -hmm. for those who aren't watching, I'm on a good day. I am five feet tall. On <laughs> <laughs> a good day. I am five feet tall. Um, I'm, you know, very petite, you know, white woman, you know, brown hair, nothing threatening about me as far as I know. And I dress. I can confirm that. Yeah, nothing threatening about me. That's very plainly nothing scary, I promise. So I've had it, you know, work in a few ways. In academia, I've had a lot of people um, not take me seriously. I get. I get taken a lot more seriously when I tell people that I study robots than when I say I study the military, you know, robots and, you know, militarism. Because, oh. you know, and still today, any kind of military history um, is a male-dominated field, you know, because the military is a male-dominated, you know, history, of course. Mm -hmm. Um. And I get a lot of people basically questioning, you know, what's your authenticity? How do you really know this? So even, you know, even with my brother, who I love so much, and he is a veteran of the Iraq War, um, and he's never had any interaction with drones. And for some reason, he still feels like he has the authority to argue with me about drones. <laughs> and that about how drones are actually operated. And that just ruins me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I have, you know, four plus years experience studying these things. I have talked to experts all over the world. I've talked to a million people working in the military. Um, and I'm like, but yet you're not going to trust my authority here. And I do think it just comes down to, but, you know, you're my little sister and, you know, sister is being the key one there and you didn't go to war. What is, you know, the authenticity of your knowledge? Mm, so there's definitely, it's so complicated, <laughs> but I've even had that with, you know, academics, just people in my department or a lot of quizzical looks is like, why do you study that? <laughs> Because like I want to. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested and it's really important. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, how do you assert yourself in the in situations where you are being challenged? That's a yeah, that is a great question. Um so many there's so many ways to do it. I think it depends too on how I'm being challenged, because sometimes I will walk away and not deal with it. Other times, I usually ask what their credentials are. Usually, in my first reply. Sometimes I bring, sometimes I say things, especially on Twitter. I'll, I'll start making an argument about drones or technology or artificial intelligence, and then someone will combat me um, and be like, "Well, here's why you're wrong." And I'm like, "Okay, well, you probably didn't know that I." I'm, you know, been a PhD program for five years, and I have all this research lined up. So let me tell you that. And 
a lot of times they just don't reply after that. <laughs> they don't know my credentials. They just see yeah. my, you know, Twitter avatar photo. That's all they say. And other times when they do come back, they still like to tell me they're wrong. <laughs> like, I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, but Twitter academia is, sorry, academic Twitter is like another world and on its own. It is, yeah. This is, yeah, this is like academics and just random people coming at me. But academic Twitter is, a, yes, it is a mixed bag of yes, people, thinking, people <laughs> thinking they have authority and that you look at their credentials and they have a degree in, like, I don't know, horticulture. <laughs> <laughs> like the study of plants or something. <laughs> no hate to horticulturalists, but no I get what you mean. Just, like, let me talk about the drones, please. All right, <laughs> let me have this one. <laughs> please. As a PhD student slash researcher slash someone in this specific field, is ageism or sexism more prevalent or are they both like the same? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, I have to say I experience a lot less ageism. Oh, that's good to hear. I, I do. And it might be my department, but there is a good amount of respect for graduate students as intellectuals. Um, but I think that there is a, there is definitely, especially when I talk about anything related to the military, the collision of sexism and ageism, um, mm-hmm. where I do have experiences of kind of older, more conservative thinking, conservative and, and like conservative and their academic ideals, basically. Um, people kind of also questioning what I study and also not only questioning like why is this like little girl you know quotes around little girl studying you know the big bad military or whatnot but there's also just a there's an argument he made as well that's not english literature and i get a lot of pushback on that of people being like justify why you're getting an english degree i don't understand why aren't you studying you know the great writers of our time I had people tell me, like, leave. I had people to tell me, leave my department in my second year here because I wanted to do unconventional things. What? That's crazy. It's what? crazy. And that, to me, is, is I've seen a gender bias in that, absolutely. Wow. Nobody questions the guy who wants to do really weird experimental things. Do you think in... Um, why do you think in even in early education that drones and further research is always dominated among uh, boys and men? Yeah, yeah, I read a great, stati- not a great statistic, but an, an important statistic uh, a couple weeks ago that was, you know, getting at this and it was saying um, in the UK... 98% of registered drone uh, drone users are men. 98%. Wow, 98. 98. And the US, I think it's 97. Wow. That's wild to me. That um, is wild. Right? I never expected it to be that high. And primarily, I this is another pet interest of mine. Because I really just want to write an article that's like, why do we see no black people in drone ads? <laughs> oh true oh wow <laughs> yeah that's a great point 
it's you know a technology and the main producers are in china so you will see a lot of um you know asian asian people in advertisements but i've don't think i've ever seen a black person in like a major grown out i've i've looked quite a bit what about like other um ethnic populations have you yeah. seen those or uh, not like yeah like latinx or anything arab american arab absolutely not um i really haven't i mean it is it is white dominated and like i said also um because there's also a racism where people like to remind us that technology comes from China. So, <laughs> so they make sure that Asian people are in the ads to remind us of that, of course. Right. So I think one of the things about my academic journey is that I got very invested. I got interested in, in disability studies, which is um, for people who don't know, it is the studies of disability rights, disability justice, disability history. And also understanding how the world has largely not been structurally designed to accommodate disabled people and looking at how their lives are devalued. Um, so similar to like gender studies or black studies or Asian studies, um, things like that, you know, looking at the inequalities. So I got interested in disability studies and at the same time I got interested in drones just about. Um, and I, you know, I did my field exams and one of them was in disability studies and one of them was kind of on like American transnationalism and war literature. And then one of them was on um, like visual cultures and visual technologies. So I did those and then it came time to like prepare for my dissertation. And I was like, I can't, you know, I was like, I know disability has got to be in this project because it's in my mind and it's how I think disability studies. But I was like, I have no idea how it's in there. <laughs> no idea what they have to do with drones. Um, so it was a lot of like me just spending time of trying to understand, okay, how is disability studies structure my thought? And how does that inform my approach to drones? So it ended up being a really, it's a really unconventional kind of new approach um, to using disability studies and also to drones, like no one has ever talked about drones and disability unless mm -hmm. they're discussing um, drones are used to disabled people overseas. Like that's kind of the, you know, the only way they're used, which is we already do that. Mm -hmm. You don't need disability studies to say that really. Right. So, um, so I use disability in an unconventional way, which is understanding it as an analytic so that basically means I'm using it as a kind of lens. So I'm looking at the ways, there's two ways I'm looking at um, drones really. How, like we said, drones are used in, in a humanitarian argument. Drones are kind of justified by saying we are saving human lives, um, especially in the context of war, because then what we're also going to see the more we use drone warfare is the eradication of the disabled veteran, which is a symbol of, you know, utmost Americanism. Mm. So there's that there's, well, actually we're saving people. So we won't run the risk of disability or any poor health. So that's the, that one. And what I'm actually interested in is understanding how um, disabled people have traditionally been understood as less than human. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that is based off a very old um, enlightenment science, um, so 18th century understanding of the human as someone who has full agency and full autonomy over their body. It's like the rights holding subject. And disabled people are not like that. They are vulnerable. They depend on other people. They don't have full autonomy over their bodies. They lack control. And that's okay, right? That's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But because of that, their lives are seen as not as valuable. So I'm looking at how drones are affecting human life and how they're changing the human condition. And I think they're changing the human condition in such a way that is more vulnerable and more interdependent and more aligned with how we would understand disability and totally shifting from that 18th century model of the human. Yeah, I I have to say, I think you are the first person I know who is researching drones and disability studies, which is just fascinating because it's so relevant, yet I never thought about the relationship. It's yeah, there's a saying in disability studies that once you once you know it, you see it everywhere. It's like yeah. it's like the argument about access. It's like once you realize that, you know, all buildings need to have ramps so wheelchair users <laughs> can get in, then everywhere you go, there isn't a ramp here. <laughs> like I don't when I go to restaurants, I'm like, Do you have a ramp? And they're like the waiter's like, but do you need it? And I'm like, no, I just oh, want to make sure it's here. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. Actually, I was going to ask you that next because yeah. um, I think so we have the privilege of being physically able-bodied, right? So, yes. um, yeah, like like you, when I go into institutions and I some when I like innocently mention it, people will say like, but are you do you need it or do your family members need it no then why are you asking but it should be more of a common question shouldn't it 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 should be accessible exactly i mean in the united states we're protected by the ada laws the americans with disability act and i know they have a similar act in the uk Mm. that says like all buildings built after a certain date like have to be accessible yeah Um, and if it's not accessible you must provide accommodations to make it accessible but like access is really expensive like to implement that's one of the arguments against it um so it puts a lot of weight on like small business owners but i personally think the government should be funding that in states oh definitely right i mean how do you think do you think um the emergence of more drone actually with drones being more accessible year by year do you think that will shape how we see disability rights and studies i well i have two replies to this is this is my current dissertation chapter i'm like literally writing it i'm gonna work on it later today i will work on it is looking (laughs) at drones that are designed for the disabled um which them disability is just understand as people who have physical um, mobility impairment so it's understanding disability in a really really limited way it's like people in wheelchairs basically mm-hmm. um so it's looking at drones that are actually controlled by a headset um there's also like mind control drones which are a real scary thing oh god yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you know And that way, there's actually been some groups um, training disabled people with these drones that you don't need to use your hands for, you don't need to walk around with or anything. You just put on the headset 
Um, and you can think the controls, like, you know, move left, move right, or you can speak the controls. Um, and some do have little hand controllers if people have hand, um, hand ability. So there has been a push to like, how can we, you know, how can disabled people get drones? Like they need drones too. Mm. It's been seen as a, it's not really by disabled rights activists, but like by the drone industry who wants to sell drones. Oh, of course. They're like, we gotta get, we gotta increase our consumer base. (laughs) That's what they're thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's what they're thinking. Um, and that's like the the drone diversity argument, which is going on now, where there's a lot of, um, you know, girls can fly drones too. And I'm like, oh, but, should, Mike, but why? We, nobody should. <laughs> uh, just, what about that? Uh, skewed equality. Yeah. And I, um, I don't think I came back to your earlier question. Um. And now I forget it. Um, about disability studies? Sorry, I can't remember. Oh, my you did. You did. No, no, you would ask me. Um, I, thought, I thought this was actually really important. Because um, you would ask me, like, isn't it, you know, you go, let's say you go to a restaurant and you're oh, sitting right, down yeah. and you don't see a ramp. You know, you know, you ask a waiter where a ramp is or something like that. And they're like, you know um oh you know do you need it and it's like no i just want to make sure it's here um and they're like oh you know we then like no we don't have a ramp and i think the other thing inherent like in the waiter's question or in anyone else who asks us like but do you need it you know do you need this accommodation do you need this access thing Mm -hmm. there's one there's an assumption just looking at someone whether or not they're disabled yeah. Um, that is a concern. There's also people who are called ambulatory wheelchair users, um, who don't need it all the time, who can walk somewhat, walk if there's emergency. There's just a lot of assumptions made there. Um, and the other issue, I think what really bothers me, which is the wider issue is like, why is it dissuaded for me to care about other people? Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, why is disability, like, right seen as like, only for disabled people to care about. I think on, I don't know if it seems like this to you, but mm-hmm. for me, I feel like disability rights is really on the lower priority in terms of other protected characteristics, which is really problematic. So uh, people still assess the physical disabilities versus. I mean, we do have unseen disabilities, don't we? So I don't know. This is still like something that's relatively new to me. I'm fairly new to this um, research area. But like, what what do you think? Like, what's your insight on all of this? Yeah, that is a great observation. And many people are surprised even when I use the terms like disability justice or like disability history. They're like, what? Disability is a history never heard that term Um, (laughs) so yeah like why don't people think about it you know why doesn't it come into play as much I think one is like it's not discussed in schools um, Mm -hmm. ever and I do think that impacts the the education the lack of education about it 
And the other is that disability is always seen as a private problem, seen as a medical problem, which is supposed to be be treated by charity. And this is the charity model of disability and people like someone just argued this a few months ago and then I wrote them a nasty rebuttal um, (laughs) in a newspaper and they argued we should get rid of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is the only civil rights act protection we have for disabled people in the United States. We should get rid of it because it caused a lot of problems for small business owners and it makes these ridiculous lawsuits. Um, and he goes, you know what's ridiculous? He's like, we can just be nice to disabled people. <laughs> Why am I legally obliged to provide accommodations? I could just, you know, I'm just nice. That was the, that was the argument. And I was like, it's not nice. It's protection of civil rights. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say, let's get, let's get, you know, let's end those racial discrimination acts. Just being nice (laughs) to black and brown people. And Asian people. um, Oh, dear. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's because, like, one, like, I guess, like, disability seems like a private problem, not a public issue that is involved in every policy. The other thing is like disability is an identity category. And this is something I think about more and more every day is, you know, who are more prone to become disabled, marginalized people. Mm. And that intersectional lens is so, 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 so important because marginalized people, you know, also have, you know, also aren't taken as seriously by their doctors. They also have lesser access to care. They don't make as much money. They're not in healthcare as much. They're oh, more, it, right? yeah. it impacts us much more. But then when you look at media representations of disability, it's always like white middle-class people. Okay, in a wheelchair. Like, always. And I'm like, you can even afford a wheelchair. Yeah. Like that, like, that's amazing to me. Like I know people that wait 10 years for a new wheelchair. Wow. And they have to crowdfund it because that's American insurance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's so like, sad, but that's so true. Yeah, that's American insurance. Oh god. Um, yeah. Um so I guess I know we've been hitting different topics and on like more of a serious note, but what is a um what are ways for people not to be dickheads in terms of drone research and when talking about disability rights? What advice would you have? Oh, that's that's a great that's a great question. Um, yeah. So when talking about disability rights, um, we actually um, speaking from the disability community, and for those listening, I do identify as disabled. I also um, identify as disability um, justice um, activist. And we like to make a firm distinction. And I say, I just mess up all the time about this, um, between saying disability justice and saying disability rights. And I prefer disability justice because justice models um, are have a more transformative element and rights-based models are often seen about how do we um give rights to individual people so it once again individualizes disability and it doesn't look at the wider structural issues which is what justice does mm, i see right so justice is like what are these structural issues at play here mm. 
Um, and it's understanding things about, you know, it's not just that, you know, like people are, people are dickheads and not all disabled people, um, can go to work or something like that. Or right now in the United States, it's legal to pay disabled people less than, um, able-bodied people. That's legally like fine. Oh, <laughs> right? that's nuts. Yeah. So fixing that would be seen as a rights issue. Okay. We're going to get, we're going to pay them equal pay. Great. Mm-hmm. And then the justice side of that would be saying, well, that doesn't solve ableism. That doesn't solve people having these internal internalized attitudes about disabled people, right? Employers should want to pay them the same. They shouldn't Mm -hmm. be legally forced to. So how do we change people's mindsets, the attitudes and beliefs? Mm, I see. I'm really glad you explained that. I, yeah, I think it, it's one of those things, the two terms like justice and right seem so, you know, just interchangeable really. Um, so I'd say have a good handle on that. Um, and my biggest advice is always just honestly listen to disabled people. Because <laughs> yeah. you'd be shocked how many people don't or discredit them, especially when it comes to things like mental illness or mm. any sort of mental difference. Because the assumption is like, well, they don't think normal. So how can I trust them? Or they don't understand this happens all the time in, in diagnosis, especially around autism, where the doctor is um, telling the patient more about themselves and the patient is telling the doctor about themselves. Oh, man, that's so dangerous to just go down that road. Yes, it's, it's like that. It's a diagnostic issue. Um, but I think that comes just in general social exchanges to where people come to disability with a lot of assumptions like oh it's a tragedy oh they must be so sad all the time they must have a miserable life or something or they need my help and it's like we don't want your help um we want justice (laughs) yeah um we don't want you to think of it as help or as like a savior figure it's thinking more about um really i i like to use the word allyship or like radical allyship of like an ally who actually does things, who builds you platforms to speak. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, you know, and works with you, doesn't work in favor of you. So we shouldn't be doing things like crowdsourcing medical bills. It's like, why don't you fight for, you know, medical care for all? Why don't you fight for universal health care instead? Yeah. And I mean, I've had conversations with many different colleagues about I would say like this overall um and 99% of the time like everyone would be sympathetic but I don't even know how to articulate this but the consensus would be like oh yeah but then a hundred years ago things are really rough for disabled folk now it's so much better it's like we Mm. can't keep comparing that I feel like this is an issue with a lot of protective characteristics like oh a million years sorry i don't know why i said a million hundred years ago there's no lgbt love you know we didn't have ramps like why is that thing i don't know if you encounter that mindset but that mindset is still spoken and pervasive Mm. so what do you think that is such like a boomer mindset (laughs) oh totally (laughs) it is 
it, yeah, it's like the, you know, back in my day argument sort of thing. Or it's really like a conservative take. Well, I don't um, know how to respond, honestly. So I'm just wondering, like, do you have any advice on how right. to respond? Sorry, yeah. and I should just add, respond not angrily, because that's usually my instinct. Right, right. And I think this works in, um, we see this happen all the time whenever discussing, like, anyone's justice or anyone, any group's, like, justice or rights. It's like, well, you've made so much progress. Things are so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, yeah, that's true, but it doesn't mean we have to stop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean things are good. Um and it's also the comparison to it. So I remember one time, I think my dad, like, he's pretty open-minded, but he had just, like, come across, he came across my books, and he was very confused about why I was reading about feminism and all this stuff about women being treated like second-class citizens or unequal. And he was like, do you really believe this? And I was like, oh. yes, I genuinely, like, believe <laughs> that women are treated lesser than men. And he was just like, he was like, well, it's not like you're in, you know, one of those girls in, like, Africa is, like, sold into sex slavery. And I'm like, first of all, that happens here. That happens everywhere, all over the world. <laughs> and he's like, well, you don't have it, you know, as bad as that. And I'm like, it's not about having it as bad as, or it's better than in the past. It's like, there's still this structural inequality going on. So I guess like the res- the response to people saying that, and they totally do, right? Like, but we gave you, you know, we gave you a civil rights act. <laughs> you go to school now. Disabled people do amazing things. They climb mountains, and that is, I think, a very limited understanding. And it also relies on the basis that the government is always good and going to do always the good thing for other people when we make. Um, and I yeah. think it also like suppresses so many voices. Definitely, like some people have like their lives have really improved, and it's like, but are they the exception or are they the rule? Hmm. I wish, um, I could. You know, like I always think of these responses as I'm walking away from the conversation so I'm always like oh I could have said that but I always (laughs) respond a story in my life respond very like angrily Mm -hmm. um but I I don't know like it's it's really hard to have these rational logical conversations with well not all boomers are like this but oh no 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 people (laughs) I no yeah this is just general yeah I wonder if one response might be something um like, I also, like, just a general argument tactic I like to do is to bring it back to the person. Um, so I wonder if one would be thinking about something they care about, something they do argue for. You know, it's like, well, you know, you were making enough salary 10, you know, 10 years ago to support your family. Did you really need that pay increase? Why are you fighting for it? True that. <laughs> like, that could be one way. And they'll probably say something like, oh, but the prices increase and the condition change. And I'm like, yeah, so the same thing happened to everyone else. The world changes and their needs and conditions have changed. <sighs> Just this. I, I mean, I don't know where you're at, but especially now I'm at the point where I'm just like exhausted. So I, I don't respond. I probably will, oh, I but you know. I can't respond a lot. 
I I have a limited like capacity for that too because I'm I am pretty exhausted. Yeah, I mean it's not your burden. It, it's not it's not our burden. Um, I did just want to say like as as we wrap up, um, you're so gracious because. I mean, you're an expert in the two research areas that we're talking about. I'm a relative noob, frankly, and I'm just hitting you with all these colloquial questions even. Um, and you've answered with like a lot of thought and response. So, yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, it's not easy to talk to academic colleagues sometimes. And I, I mean, I think you know what I mean. But yeah. it, it was really just easy to talk to you about it. That is so great to hear. Um, and I actually did find your questions to be colloquial at all, really. Like I said, you didn't ask me when a robot's going to take over the world. And that's <laughs> really exciting for me. Um, but no, I think this, um, and I'm, I'm not even, like, Claire did not ask me to do this. But I think <laughs> what I like about this podcast, and especially with any podcast that embraces people from all academic disciplines, is, like, like, I just really believe that academic knowledge should be publicly accessible and explained in a clear way. Because, like, what we talk about in academia is real life. Yeah, right? And, like, it should be explained to the people it affects in a simple manner. Um, you know, my written work is, like, a big theoretical mess. Um, but it's just good to just, like, talk down with, like, humans. <laughs> yeah. And That's research good... shouldn't be combined to white older men. I'm sorry yes. I interrupted you. All no, just always. Yes, that was a great interruption. <laughs> um, right. Why it shouldn't be confined to certain people, which is just the same as saying, like, you know, just academics talk about academic stuff. Like I think that public accessibility is also part of like disability justice. What are your last thoughts before we wrap this up? And what is something fun that you've been doing during quarantine to unwind? Oh, good questions. All right. Um, so let me start with the wrap this up. Do you want like a do you want like a good closing line or? It's up to you, honestly. <laughs> OK, so the best advice I can give right now for disability justice is um, take quarantine seriously. Wear a mask um, and help people who are immune compromised. Because oh, you yeah. going outdoors and being a dick and going to the beach is putting them at greater risk. Hundred <laughs> percent. <laughs> so true. I can say right now, just yeah. Don't be an asshole. Anyone can die from this thing, but immune compromised people are at a much higher risk. It's not a so, conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. This is so much proven science. You could go drive by the hospital right now and you would see it, but don't go in the hospital. Stay at home, watch Netflix. <laughs> Stay at home, do absolutely nothing. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Wear a damn mask when you go out. Um, yeah, so that that's my that's my big pitch there at the end. Um, support human workers always. Support human laborers. Um, and then fun thing I've been doing in quarantine. So two fun things. One, I picked up running again, which I actually enjoy, but then I. Um, I'm a very just messy human and I already picked up an injury. So now I can't run for two months. Oh no. <laughs> but that was a good lesson for me that I need to slow down and stop trying to be productive all the time and just relax. Oh yeah. That's good advice. But that was, that yeah. was really good. 
Um, and what I've actually been doing is I've been rewatching old football matches from the 80s and 90s, like vintage ones. And by football, I mean like English football, your football guy, <laughs> uh, not cool. soccer. Um, and that's just been really fun because it's a history that I didn't grow up with. So I'm kind of slowly um, reliving that a little bit. Yeah, that's really cool, actually. What a niche hobby. Actually, I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm sure like other people do it. I just only know you that is doing it so far in the quarantine. So that's that's a unique hobby. If you miss sports, watch sports you have never seen. And it is pretty exciting still. Yeah, no, that's... <laughs> I, I was just going to think, yeah, I should probably like catch up on all the sports matches that I've missed this past year. But by vintage, like how are you watching these games? Um, there are legal sites, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Internet. Um, the older the game, the more likely it is to be found legally online. But just yeah. really just streaming services, have a lot of friends. And it's also kind of. You have to figure there weren't many matches actually streamed in the 80s. So it's all the kind of big Premier League matches and World Cups, especially. A lot are on YouTube, really. That's so cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, you'd be surprised how much you can find on YouTube. Just searching it, like no secret searches. <laughs> oh, you, I can get sucked into a deep YouTube spiral. I mean, you have time. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is also true. Um, <laughs> if it makes you happy yeah i wanted to ask though because i remember you were supposed to come to the uk in may um obviously you're not anymore do you have any plans to come back anytime well do you have plans to come back after this is over really um my friend and i our general vibe is like whenever we can like as soon as it is safe like we will most likely be on a plane um we're very big football fans so we want to go like celebrate what might be the rest of the season if it can happen mm -hmm. uh, and we also just have a lot of friends over there now so it's always good to go to go visit um to go to escape and yeah like just i will absolutely come back when it's safe and when i think it is safe not when like boris and trump say it's safe thanks so much again all right thank you so much claire you have a great day too do you think? Bye. All right. Bye bye.